The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policies, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. So, Seb, in a week where we're expecting this cabinet reshuffle, perhaps slightly smaller than previously anticipated, and we've had the decision in favour of HS2, there are lots of big questions that the Prime Minister could be asked, of course, because it's Wednesday and it's PMQs. Yeah, there are. And this is a government that really is in go mode, isn't it? They're <laughs> making the most out of that majority. Every week we see new big bills put in front of the floor and they are racing through none of this difficulty that Theresa May saw. Uh, We've got PMQs going on right now. I'm just watching Boris Johnson taking his first question uh, from Julian Lewis, who is the Conservative member for New Forest East. But also we've got that new paper on social media regulation as well. This is another issue that the government is now starting to toy with. And it really would be the first serious attempt at state regulation of social media. Mm, Yeah, which could be fascinating. And then, of course, there's the spat between the UK and the EU over equivalence and the future of financial services. Uh, We're going to delve into that in a little moment with John Barris, who is the uh, from the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, so basically one of the the uh, city industry groups to, to discuss that. But look, his PMQs. And I can also assure him that by uh, transforming this country's economy and by raising productivity, we will ensure that both defence and security are amply provided for. Leader of the Opposition, Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I join with the Prime Minister in uh, expressing sympathy and support to those that are victims of flooding, and thank you to the Environment Agency and all the emergency services that are doing their best to help people. Mr. Speaker, our thoughts are also with those who suffer from the coronavirus and also with the Chinese community in this country, who are, I'm sorry to say, facing increasingly alarming levels of racism within our country. And as this virus spreads, I also want to thank public health workers who are helping those affected and raising awareness about the danger of this virus. Mr Speaker, does the Prime Minister think that someone who came to this country at the age of five and was in and was the victim of county lines grooming and compelled to carry drugs, released five years ago and never reoffended, deserves to be deported? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think the whole country uh, would agree that while I cannot comment on individual cases, it is entirely right that foreign national offenders should be deported from this country in accordance with the law. Jeremy Corbyn. The government has learned absolutely nothing from the Windrush scandal. 
This cruel and callous government is trying to mislead the British people into thinking it's solely deporting foreign nationals who are guilty of murder, rape and other very serious offences. This is clearly not the case. Take the example of a young black boy who came to the UK aged five and is now being deported after serving time for a drugs offence. If there was a case of a young white boy with blonde hair who later dabbled in Class A drugs and conspired with a friend to beat up a journalist, would he deport that boy or is it, or Mr Speaker, is it one rule for young black boys from the Caribbean and another for white boys from the United States? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think quite frankly that the right honourable gentleman demeans himself and by the way besmirches, besmirches the reputation. First of all, the Windrush scandal and then that deportation we saw of, in the end, less than half of the people who were sent back to Jamaica, some of them uh, very young when they left the country to move to Britain in the first place, and some of them who were sentenced for minor crimes. And so that's where the controversy has come from. What's interesting, though, is this morning we heard from the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, and he was really seeking to quash fears that Number 10 is planning uh, quite drastic moves to curtail the judiciary. If you remember in the manifesto, mm-hmm. there was a commitment there to say, up a constitution commission to consider whether they should limit the scope of judicial review. And of course, it was judicial review that helped get some of these people off that plane and managed to keep them in the UK. And this is what I find really interesting because we saw a very aggressive uh, stance by the government in this vein uh, in the early days before the election. Mm. And now we've got to see whether it goes ahead like this. Uh, I've got to bring in uh, Therese Raphael uh, from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, uh, Therese, what's interesting about this is, uh, is sort of the government messaging here. Do you see them going ahead and taking these draconian measures? Or do you think that now they have this majority, there are perhaps other priorities? I mean, I do think the pressure is off with the majority to try to use the judiciary to, you know, to to, um, essentially, you know, force the uh, government's agenda through. Sorry there. But, um, you know, this is going to be uh, an issue that many conservatives in Boris Johnson's party would like to see resolved one way or or another, um, they were deeply disturbed by the ruling uh, that his uh, he, that his uh, a suspension of parliament was illegal, and that set off an, a whole debate in the party about um, changing the way the judiciary works, uh, curtailing the powers of the Supreme Court. But you know, as you said, it's it's a there's only so many big issues they can take on. Um, they're taking on infrastructure. They're taking on um, obviously the big. Uh, number of trade agreements, not just one with the EU, but with the US and other countries. And so, you know, do they want a national battle over judicial reform now? You know, I'm not convinced that's one that's so close to Boris Johnson's heart. Yeah, no, indeed. I think um, it's fascinating. The the comments from Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England yesterday, you know, the the sort of right-leaning newspapers in the UK coming out in favour, saying that Mark Carney had supported the government agenda of levelling up the nation. um, And yet, in it was also really a warning to the government about 
this is going to be a committed policy that you will need to enact over years. It's not yeah. sort of going to be swift. So you're right that perhaps um, they've got some very big plans. Are they biting off more than they can chew? And when you talk about certainly new powers, this one on social media regulation really caught our eye today. I wonder whether there'll be a question on that in the House of Commons. This is the government planning to give Ofcom new uh, powers over the big US firms. Is that going to be something that flies? Well, this is a, you know, this is an example of a policy that will make a big headline, will satisfy some of the, uh, you know, uh, of the people the government wants to appeal to, particularly young people, um, you know, parents who are worried about their children uh, getting uh, drawn into these sort of dark areas of the internet. Um, but, you know, the government's being very cautious here. There was a white paper. There was a message in the Queen's speech. There was a consultation now. Mm-hmm. And then there will be the bill. And the bill might actually not be quite as radical as, as some are suggesting now, which, you know, with uh, GDPR level fines of up to 4% of global turnover uh, for for offenders. France has enacted a, a bill recently. It's still very new. But I think the government will, will have a look at how that's, uh, how that's working. But, you know... That is a kind of headline uh, that the government, you know, that the government can make that sort of says mm. we're legislating, we're doing something differently here. All right, Therese, thanks so much. That's Therese Raphael from Bloomberg Opinion. Let's move it on and talk about financial services. It's a big story this week. Uh, we're already gearing up, gearing up for this to be a key battleground, really, in the UK-EU negotiations. Chancellor Sajid Javid and the chief EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, have traded blows uh, as they approach a self-imposed June deadline to make some progress. A big flashpoint is equivalence this policy that will give UK firms continued access to the single market. So let's get into this. Joining us now is John Barris. He's the Deputy Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. It's a group that represents firms that provide investment management and financial advice. So really caught amongst all of this. Uh, John, you must be pretty worried about this because it was put ahead as a negotiating stance, but it was so clear even from then that this was going to get rejected by the EU, this big proposal that the UK wanted access. Well, I think what you need to do is to um, sort out the grandstanding bit from what is actually the real kind of nub of the negotiations. And so you've got to look at um, initial political statements in that context. So um, obviously, we do not want to see total rejection at the end of the day. But at the beginning of the day, you're going to get phrases that don't sound awfully good. So let's let's not worry too much about that. The big issue about equivalence is where does it apply? Uh, I represent firms who uh, are dealing in the retail investment and savings sector uh, and give advice to individuals and families. In that sector, we don't have any equivalence at all. None of the laws that govern the way in which our firms have to operate uh, have paragraphs or sections which set up an equivalence regime should we be a third country. Now that we have, are a third country, we'll become a full, fully-fledged, non-equivalent third country on 31st of December. Um, that we need to start thinking about how that's to, 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 to be worked out. But for us, equivalence is a peculiarly absent debate. The big issue, I think, for us is do we want to look at areas where there might be inserted some equivalence uh, language, which would then be a negotiation with the other side, because they'd have to pass that into their laws, uh, for retail for access to retail clients who live on the continent. This okay. is another matter. Okay. Um, so perhaps for your particular part of the financial industry, not as relevant, but surely you must be worried overall about the city being able to stay competitive, being able to compete and not being eroded away uh, you know, by, by competition uh, f- from other European capitals. Absolutely. 
absolutely. There, there are a couple of points here. One is that we have made quite clear in all the material we have uh, produced uh, on the Brexit issue that um, we do not want to see fragmentation of the um, financial um, ecosystem, if you like, within the city, uh, actually in the UK as a whole, because, of course, don't forget people like us, our firm stretch right across the country. We have over 500 offices uh, nationwide. So this is a national issue. Um, uh, and the uh, financial ecosystem that has grown up uh, uh, centered on London has been actually very beneficial because it re reduces fragmentation, reduces mm -hmm. costs, uh, increases the range of choice, right. uh, allows easy access for consumers to the things they need to invest in. John, talk to me about the sort of discussions you've had with the government. Have you received any assurances from them that things are going to run smoothly after Brexit? Because we've really heard a change of tone, certainly in terms of importers and exporters this week, some leaks of conversations that have happened with those industry bodies. And it sounds like there's a big shift there. No, we haven't had any assurances, um, but what we have had is ongoing conversations um, about the issues connected with our firms, and in particular the point I've just made, that if we can retain a proper ecosystem here, which is unfragmented, the people who will benefit are private consumers, because uh, it goes right down the line to them. When they invest, they have more choice. The other point is maintaining the competitiveness of the market here. That will actually encourage investment in the market and make sure that the financial services sector stays strong and big, and that we also need uh, to keep the ecosystem going. Um, I think that as regards the assurances and so on, as I said, there haven't been assurances as such, but the Treasury is well aware of all the issues um, and, of course, is providing negotiating briefs uh, for ministers uh, as appropriate on this. Uh, equivalence is a really major issue. I pointed out that it's not something for the private uh, investor on the grounds that actually in the law governing that sector there isn't any equivalence at all, but it's very important for the rest, for the bigger firms, and also very important for the, uh, uh, the, the, the integrity of the ecosystem. So I think that issue overall, the Treasury is very well aware of and will certainly be pushing to make sure that's maintained. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're looking for them to, to keep uh, all that in mind when they go into the negotiations or put ministers into negotiations uh, in the coming months. It sounds to me like you think that this Boris Johnson administration is uh, quite favourable towards supporting the financial services industry, even though there have been some doubts about uh, whether that might be the case. And also when it actually comes to the government's uh, alignment with the EU, I mean, a lot of sort of, again, you know, rhetoric around being tough with the EU and diverging. But actually, is that, are we going to end up with divergence? We've only got months of this negotiation ahead. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, the recognition of the significance of financial services is clear in any case. Clearly, lots of rhetoric, that's absolutely true. But it's also true, as I think is well known, that this is, and I think it's the biggest single industry you've got. It certainly employ, uh, is to do with about 11% of the GDP is in this mm, service. Yeah, and we uh, contribute a massive amount to exports. I think it's, what's the total service is 79 billion. In 2018. I forget now the actual amounts, but it's a huge industry for this, and clearly you can't just throw this away. So there's going to be a recognition of how of, of dealing with this is going to be important. The second thing is that um, uh, in terms of the administration and so on, um, uh, managed divergence is something that came up in speeches actually by Bob Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May. Uh, we are aware that you're going to get some reviews of MIFID, uh, for example, which is in the news now, which uh, we won't be involved in. That's going to change things. Mm -hmm. We are going to look at change. That you're going to get divergence. The thing is the managed divergence is what really counts on this. What we want to see is not random divergence of a kind that right. sort of looks good. We want to see it managed so that we retain the market um, arrangements that are useful for the UK. All right, John, thanks so much. That's John Barris, the Deputy Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, speaking on what is only, I think, going to become a bigger issue as those clashes between the UK and the EU grow. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th 
a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Got to start with this story from The Telegraph, making some big predictions ahead of tomorrow's cabinet reshuffle. The paper sees Cabinet Office Minister Oliver Dowden getting Nicky Morgan's job as Cultural Secretary, Prisons Minister Lucy Fraser replacing Geoffrey Cox as Attorney General, another Cabinet Officers Minister, uh, Chloe Smith. She gets an expanded cabinet role as Minister for the Union. And then Chief Whip Mark Spencer, the paper says, is pushing to take over as Environment Secretary. You've got Michael Gove getting the EU trade job, as many had suspected. Zach Goldsmith winning presidency of <laughs> COP26, continuing yes. to fail upwards. And North and powerhouse minister Jake Berry seeing his job elevated to a cabinet level position. I think what's really interesting about this is the highlights of the union and yes. the uh, Northern Powerhouse and how the government's priorities are really being emphasised in the promotions and in the changes of what is a cabinet role and what isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Minister for the Union. Hmm, mm. that's interesting. Uh, also, of course, no doubt you'll get the usual totting up of how many women, uh, exactly the background of each of the ministers. I mean, no doubt Dominic Cummings will be keeping a close eye on that one uh, as uh, we expect the cabinet reshuffle later this week. Um, also, of course, uh, we have to talk about the Labour leadership, the four Labour leadership contenders go head-to-head on a national TV uh, debate uh, for the first time tonight. Newsnight is hosting a Q&A and the Victoria Derbyshire show hosts a second televised hustings tomorrow. Um, that's as contender Rebecca Long-Bailey has signed up to a pledge to expel Labour members who have expressed transphobic views, a plan which critics say could lead to, quote, a witch hunt. But it will be yeah interesting to see what, uh, what the... TV debates actually look like. Yeah, and it, oh my god, it's just going on for so long, isn't it? <laughs> I feel yes. like it's now coming up again, and, are and we it's weeks care? to go until it we actually get a decision. Really is, isn't it? It's the start of April, isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, let's dig into this because it is actually interesting and it is actually important. <laughs> if there's going to be any sort of uh, notable election in 2024, joining us now is Paula Surridge, political sociologist at Bristol University. Paula, I've been looking at Lord Ashcroft's report on the election and where it all went wrong for Labour. Uh, he says that he found that the most popular reason for deserting Labour for the Conservatives or the Lib Dems was that people didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. What I'm not clear on is whether this is an issue of policy or an issue of personality. And that's clearly something that these leadership contenders have to be thinking about. It is. And the the Lord Ashcroft report is really, really useful. There's loads of fantastic data to dig into in that report. But it is focusing on the voters that moved between 2017 and 2019. And I think to really understand what's going on, you've got to dig a little bit further back than that. Um, So it's easy to say, well, people didn't like Corbyn in, in 2019. But if you look a little bit further back, if you look to 2015, or which we, which normally is the election we would be looking at now in a kind of four-year cycle, <laughs> or, back, or back to 2010 even, um, the voters and the places that were moving away from Labour in those elections... Um, we're not doing so because of Jeremy Corbyn, because clearly he wasn't leader um, at that point. And so there is there is a real need for Labour to understand why it was losing some of those voters even before um, Jeremy Corbyn or Brexit came mm. onto the onto the political agenda. 
so Paula, what I don't get is if austerity has been happening since 2010, and if it's been hurting the poorest people in society, why then are they still continuing to vote for the party who's imposed that? Well, I think there's an issue there that they didn't see, as the Ashcroft officer says, they, they didn't see the Labour Party manifesto as really deliverable. They didn't trust that it would ever happen anyway. Um, but, but, but voters vote on a whole range of different issues and economics are important, but they're not the only thing that drives people's votes. And again, it's there in the Ashcroft report, but you can see it in data um, in earlier elections as well, mm. um, that lots of these voters felt that the Labour Party had moved away from them on some of the social issues as well. Um, and so there's those two things going on. OK, uh, Paula, do you think anybody is going to watch these uh, leadership debates uh, between the four contenders uh, for, uh, you know, to take over from Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, I note that uh, Keir Starmer has released his 10 pledges today to try to unify Labour. Um, but a lot of them, you know, are are very much the policies that we've seen in the past under Corbyn. Yes, um, I, I've seen them described today as, as quite similar to those put forward by Ed Miliband in 2015 as well. Mm. I can't imagine that, I mean, if we look at viewing figures for, um, you know, prime ministerial debates during an election campaign, they're not massive. And to think that people are going to tune in specifically to see the Labour election, the Labour leadership election seems to me a bit optimistic. The people like us that watch this stuff all the time will no <laughs> doubt continue to watch it, but it's probably not going to reach the wider public except through the odd soundbite here and there. And that's where I think at the moment Labour have got an opportunity to show that they've listened to voters and that, they're a cha- that they are trying to change in the way that voters want them to. But I don't think so far that they're, that they're managing to do that very well. I've got to pick you up on something you said or dive into something you said about uh, candidates not being socially conservative enough. Do you think any of the leaders who are standing now have the potential to be that? Clearly, they're not going to show it now when they're trying to appeal to the Labour core base. But once they've won, do you think there's anybody who could make a little bit of a shift there and try and win back some of that red wall support? So obviously, um, Lisa Nandy and her campaign is is talking about that in terms of a red bridge, not using the language of social conservatism, but making those kinds of ideas and putting those kinds of ideas out there. Um, And I think there is some elements underpinning um, some of what Keir Starmer says that can be seen in that vein, although not moving in quite the same direction as Lisa Nandy. Um, But the the problem Labour have, of course, is that at this point, it's the Labour membership that they need to convince. And the Labour membership are not in that place. So it would be unwise for anyone who was wanting to try and win over those voters at the moment to, to, to be tilting towards where the voters actually are on these issues. Mm, OK, let's talk about things a little more immediate as we come towards the end of the programme, uh, which is um, Prime Minister's questions. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, speaking, saying that he wants the UK to seek extradition, could continue to seek extradition of Sekoulis uh, from the United States. So the woman accused of uh, of of, of uh, driving the wrong way and, um, and, and killing a young man in the UK. Elements of the UK relationship with the US is unbalanced. Johnson's government wants to make the UK the safest place to be online. So some lines from PMQs. And in the Times, an opinion piece about how Johnson's premier is much better understood if you think of him as a mayor for the UK. That's often a thought that uh, uh, people mention. Do you think he's more a mayor for Britain? It's not something I've really thought about. I tend to spend my time thinking more about what the voters think, if, if I'm honest. But it seems to me that it's not a bad way to try to engage voters because most voters, the issues that they think about on a day-to-day basis are more local issues, the kind the kinds of issues that a mayor would be um, 
would be seen to be dealing with. So in that sense, I think in trying to hold their voter coalition together, because there's, there's divisions there's divisions there as well, it's not a bad strategy, actually, to um, be seeing to try and promote something a little bit more um, local, even if the local there is Britain rather than um, London or, or Manchester. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.